Hey friends, before the next episode, I wanted to share a bit more about my virtual recovery community called The Recovery Collective. For less than a cost of one therapy session per month, our members get access to workshops, group coaching with me, cook-alongs, yoga, recipes, meditations, and even a private Facebook community. It is seriously the most fun community in the eating disorder recovery world right now. If your eating disorder is making you feel isolated and alone, this place will lift your spirits and bring you the connection you're looking for. So I ask you to join all of us. Go to recoverycollective.mykajabi.com or you can check out the link in the show notes. I look forward to seeing you inside the collective and enjoy this next episode. You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today's guest is a leader in the eating disorder recovery space and also a mentor of mine. Her name is Carolyn Costin, and she is a highly respected and experienced clinician, a dedicated educator, and a recognized agent of change in the field of eating disorders. She was actually the founder of Montanito and the affiliate programs, and she's also the founder of Eating Disorder Recovery Coaching as we know it today. She trained me to be an eating disorder recovery coach a few years back, and I am lucky enough to have developed a relationship with her since then, and it is a true joy to work with Carolyn, to know Carolyn, and speak with someone who has had so much impact in the field. So please enjoy this episode today. We're going to be diving into all about how her career evolved, her own recovery story, and also the origin of eating disorder recovery coaching and how it fits into treatment today. And with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of the show. Today, I have the lovely Carolyn Costin with me. And for those of you who do not know who Carolyn is, she is a leader in the recovery space and also trained me to be a eating disorder recovery coach. So Carolyn, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. As you know, I love talking about this work. I'm excited. Yes, I'm so excited as well. And we were just talking before about how we want this interview to go. And I mentioned wanting to learn more about your story. And I think that's where I would love to start. Could you share a little bit about how your eating disorder started in your life and what that was like for you? Well, in a way, I have the classic story of going on a diet in high school and all a bunch of girlfriends and I went on a diet. And I also, my girlfriend's father was always trying to lose weight. So he made a bet with me who's going to lose the most weight. And I was a very determined kid. I have that perfectionistic kind of controlled junkie temperament that is often found in anorexia nervosa. So I was going to win that bet. I did. And then I just kept going. And Looking back, I can talk about it differently than at the time. And at the time, I just felt, wow, I'm getting a lot of attention. I'm successful. My friends couldn't lose the weight. I could. And I started feeling successful and good about myself. If, Like we used to go to Taco Bell and McDonald's after school. And then I became the one who could resist. 
I became the one who could sit there while other people were eating. And I could tell myself, you don't have to have that. You're stronger than that. And I think that's a big part of what happens in when you look at society in terms of Twiggy was very famous at the time and we all wanted to be thin. And then you combine that with why did I develop anorexia and my friends didn't. And I had the classic temperament. And then I also have such a classic piece of the story, which is my dad had left my mom for a fashion model. Can you imagine? Oh my gosh. Here I have the perfect storm. And that's why I talk to people all the time about looking at all of the things that contribute to people getting an eating disorder, because it isn't just genetics and it isn't just the culture and it isn't just psychological issues, but it's a combination, a jigsaw puzzle put together of all those things. I just probably lost about 30 some pounds or I don't know. I won't say what I weighed, but I lost a lot of weight right before I went off to college my senior year. And then when I went to college, that's a hard time. I was young. I was only 16 when I left for college and I was there by myself and I had already started down this path. I just continued and continued to get worse until you realize. And I remember having the realization, this isn't, I'm not controlling this anymore. It's in control of me. And I think that's a important realization to help people make when you're trying to help them is they think it's in control. And I have a famous line that I say to clients all the time. If you want to show me you're really in control, you think this is control because they're so afraid of getting out of control. People with anorexia in life, mm-hmm. eating and getting out of control. I say, if you want to show me you have control, eat this cookie because that's the whole <laughs> thing to do, right? Yeah. So, but at that time, I didn't know any. Anybody else who had an eating disorder, never met anybody. And my whole time in college, I met one other person and she ate and threw up her food. And I thought that was so weird. I never heard of it before. I tried it. Luckily, I couldn't make myself throw up. And interestingly enough, I decided I wanted to be a teacher and I studied and became a teacher. And then I became a high school counselor and I wanted to be a therapist. And um, during this process of all those things, I just said, I was working on at some point I realized kind of when I realized I'm not in control of it, it's in control of me. I tried to get some help, but I went to the counselor at college and she had never Mm-hmm. seen anyone like me heard any of anything like it my mom took me to a doctor who read some a very interesting book by Hilda Bruch not the golden cage but a book that was this big fat book called I think it was called obesity and the eating disorders or something like that and I would say three-fourths of the book was about other kinds of eating disorders and weight and binging and stuff. The last part of the book was about anorexia nervosa and it was shocking to me. And I was like, Oh, somebody got inside my head. And, and I realized something was going on and I wouldn't tell anybody else to do what I was doing. I was cold all the time. My hair was falling out. I mean, there were things that were just undeniable And I kind of knew, I kept a journal at the time too, so I can go back and look at it, which is Mm. so bizarre. But I knew that my brain, and I even used these words, had been hijacked. Yes, I use that word all the time. It's a good one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And I was studying psychology and I started using what I was learning on myself. I really did. I gave myself behavior modification experiments. I did a lot of stuff where I was kind of working on myself and I had a sort of a famous moment driving to a Christmas party where I was telling myself, now you, when you go in there, don't eat one thing. You're not allowed. You can't have all that stuff, the cookies and the cakes. And then I hear this other voice that was definitely me. Another part of me said, what would really be harder for you is to go in and just have a few things. What you're really afraid of is that you're going to get fat and all that stuff. You should go in and have a few. And then the other voice is like, no, you're just trying to get away with being indulgent. And I had a battle that I now refer to as my eating disorder self and my healthy self. I recognize that, wow, I have two parts of me that are in a fight. 
And I started working on that with myself. And that became the philosophy that I later used and have built on in a 40 year career, helping other people to integrate those two parts. Mm -hmm. Not, I didn't try to get rid of that part telling me those things. I tried to understand it. Where is it coming from? Why is it taken over? Tried to be kind to it, listen to it. So when I ultimately became a therapist, I realized that I had to work with people and who knew when I first became a therapist, <laughs> I really thought, who's who, what eating disorders am I going to treat? There's ne- hardly any of those around because I became a therapist in 19. Are you ready? Oh. <laughs> you, weren't, you were not alive. <laughs> 1979. And I never thought I'd make a career in eating disorders because there wouldn't be that much work. But a few people, I was still working at the high school and I was a high school counselor and my principal knew of someone at another school who had anorexia. And they said, she has that thing you have, you should see her. And I did. And it was like, I was inside her head and she felt seen and empathized with, and she got better. And then her mom knew of somebody else who had an eating disorder and they referred it to me. And so I started growing this practice in eating disorders. And then Karen Carpenter died, unfortunately, and Mm. was on the cover of time. And eating disorders kind of exploded. And I already had sort of made a name for myself. And then it just went on from there to realizing that people were being treated in hospitals. I didn't particularly like what I saw going on in the hospital treatment. So I started, I got hired. I was shocked they hired me. Running <laughs> the hospital eating disorder unit. And then I realized the gap in the field. People don't need to be in hospitals. They should really be We should have residential treatment centers like we have for chemical dependency, where you're in a home and you have a home cooked meal and you learn how to grocery shop and portion your food. Because we had people in hospitals and we weren't teaching them any of those skills. They got their food on a tray. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? They didn't go grocery shopping. There was no one to help them if they gained weight to buy new clothes. I thought this is insane. And I that's when I opened the first residential, which was Montanito. And that just became a whole game changer in the field, residential treatment. And now all the way to sold Montanito and realized within about a year, why are there no eating disorder coaches? You know? <laughs> yeah. And there's life coaches and sober coaches. And I'm always like that. I just, and I was scared to do it just like I was scared to open residential. People said, oh, insurance isn't going to pay. And, and they say that about coaching, but I knew it was right to do the residential and I I knew it was right a few years ago to start training coaches. And, and so, as you know, because you are a coach, a certified coach, that's what I spend my time doing now is, Mm. and I have about 76 coaches now in about 15 countries. And I think it's making its place. So that's my story. Not quick, the, the, the cliff note version. Well, I love to hear how you were just following your intuition. It seems like the entire time, just allowing doors to open and walking through them bravely, especially kind of as a pioneer in the space. I mean, I do think you have to pay attention and listen when you get messages. Mm -hmm. I do think it, it was scary. People always say, oh, how, how brave you were to go up in front of the very first international eating disorder conference and say, I'm recovered. And, and this was an, at an IADEP conference over 30 some years ago. There was a big buzz about it because people were using the term recovering then. But I felt like, no, I'm not. I'm, it's over. It's gone. Yeah, I was scared, though. I, I'm always a little scared to do what I do. And I don't. And, and people told me, oh, you shouldn't disclose to people that you're recovered. You should keep that private. You Do you want to be known as a recovered person or do you want to be known as a professional? And I felt kind of humiliated and I walked away from that conversation and later thought, why can't I be both? And I'm in a fight for people to be both. You shouldn't be ashamed of being recovered. And besides, I have things to offer as a role model to people who think they can't get better or can't get over it. And I never looked back from that. And I still don't. I still think recovered people have a place. And as you know, 97 or 8% of the coaches are recovered themselves from their own eating disorder. So I think it's giving them a rightful place in the support and space for in the overall treatment plan for people with eating disorders. Yeah, absolutely. 
Would you say that was your proudest moment so far? The, the moment a long time ago where you were able to boldly state that you were actually fully recovered and that it's possible because that is such a pivotal moment in the history of treatment, I feel. Yeah, you know, looking back, I, I think it was, but it's hard to talk about it because it's me. I'm not really <laughs> a braggart, even though it might seem so. I, but I do come back to that moment a lot. And I not only said it myself, I had four other uh, people who I had treated who are also recovered and had been for a number of years, not just a year. And, you know, I don't even think you're recovered till you have two years, but they had a few years and they stood up and told their story, too. So I wasn't just saying, oh, it's just me. I'm an outlier. That was certainly a proud moment. But I also... I'm so proud of Montanito. I'm so proud of opening that residential in a home and having a loving sort of family environment to heal people because I just didn't think hospitals were the right place for people to get better. I mean, unless you're super medically compromised, I don't think it is. And I, so I'm proud of that. And I think you probably know this. I had a dream before. Do you know this about my dream? I'm not sure. I actually had a dream about 10 years before Montanito, where I was, and this is before any residential, I didn't even know the word residential. I woke up and I told my husband, okay, I had the weirdest dream. There was this house and I had six girls in the house. They all had eating disorders and I had a dietitian, and I had a cook who came in and we went on hikes and I had therapists coming and it was so weird. And I think it was like some kind of treatment center or something, okay? I forget about the dream. 10 years later, my friend was going to buy a house and she wanted me to come look at it. And I drove up the driveway and had a weird deja vu experience. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I know this place. And when I walked up the steps, I had the image of, oh my God, this was my dream. And I walked in and I knew where the rooms were. I knew what the I knew what the dining room table looked like in the kitchen. And I freaked out and never really had such a prophetic dream before. And I said to her, I think I'm supposed to open an eating disorder place in this house. And she and I both kind of freaked out. And she said, you can have it. And that turned into Montanito, that house. Talk about following your, I had to pay attention. And I remember that dream and I just... And I became undaunted. There were no residential license. The state didn't know what to do with me. They didn't know how to license me. We don't have any license or anything <laughs> like that. But I just would not stop. And I, I knew I was supposed to do it there. And so, yeah, that's an interesting. I, I don't know how to explain that. Mm. Quantum physics or something. Yeah. I don't know. I love that story because you were really connected to something. Something. Yeah. Something. connected to something that you were boldly following. And that's what I really admire about you is the fact that you don't always go with the grain. You, you're okay with going against the grain. Oh my God, I can't believe you said that. Did you know that my nickname, when I was on the board of the National Eating Disorder Association, my nickname was Sideways. <laughs> <laughs> And Doug Bunnell gave it to me and he said, because I would always come in and go kind of sideways or something. <laughs> but I think when you have, especially when you have an experience of having an illness, and I remember sitting in conferences and listening to people talking about it who'd never had it and studying it and thinking, oh no, that's, they have that, that's not right. Now that doesn't mean that I have the experience for everybody because number one, I haven't had every eating disorder. I didn't have binge eating disorder. I didn't have bulimia, but I do think I got passionate about trying to come at it from the perspective of suffering from having your brain hijacked, suffering from how concerns about body image can take over what you do, how you can have a rational mind that I would never like a woman with an eating disorder would never feed her kids like she feeds herself. What is that? Mm -hmm. And that whole idea about everyone has a healthy self in there. You can bring it out for others. You're just not bringing it out for yourself. And growing that part, strengthening that part, it's much more acceptable to the person suffering to hear that we're going to strengthen your healthy self. And that part of you is then going to get control back of your life, as opposed to going trying to take something away 
from them before they're ready to have it taken away. Yeah, that is, it is so true and very empowering as the person going through it to know that you don't have to just like get rid of the eating disorder immediately. You can just focus on growing the part of you that is more loving and compassionate and to yourself, especially. That. Yeah, yeah. It's really, and you know, it's, it's hard, but I always, as you talk about integration, when you're recovered, when you integrate those split selves that you have, because mm-hmm. look, you and I both know people who are presidents of banks, physicians, treating people, people who are the valedictorian that they're, they're high schools, really smart, capable people who have eating disorders. And what is that? So this is not some craziness, so to speak. Although sometimes I tell, I point that out to my clients. That's crazy talking, you know, <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? It's, it's a whole way that you adapt to try to figure something out and to try to guide yourself in a certain direction. And yes, there are genetic components to it. There's no doubt that there are some biological traits that make someone more vulnerable to succumbing to an eating disorder. Like I did. And my girlfriends who went on diets didn't, but That doesn't mean that it's a biological illness. As I said, it's a complicated, there are a lot of reasons for the illness, and that doesn't mean you can't be recovered. Some people think because there's a genetic predisposition, that means you'll always have it. I think that's damaging. I think I've heard clients say things like, oh, well, if it's biological or if it's my temperament or if it's my genetic traits, then why bother trying to get better? And I always say it absolutely isn't. You may have those traits, like you may have perfectionism or anxiety or impulse control, let's say for another type of eating disorder than restrictor anorexia, but you may have these traits, but you can mitigate those traits. And you've heard me talk about this where people can have those traits, but turn them, channel those traits into something positive. Mm -hmm. So for example, if you're perfectionistic, you can be perfect at counting calories and weighing fat grams and having as little to eat as possible. Or you can turn that into wanting to turn in good homework and wanting to do a good podcast or whatever. (laughs) And so I, I call that taking your traits from the darkness to the light, which is another thing I think is super important about how we get integrated as people when we have split self, an eating disorder self and a healthy self, the more you work on your traits, the more you become integrated. So you're one whole self again, mm-hmm. using your traits in the best way, as opposed to being, well, over here, I'm a physician, but over here, I'm using those same traits to count my fat grams or yes. lose so much weight. Mm-hmm. I love when you talk about traits and keeping traits in check. And how you can transform them from maybe a liability to an asset. Well, first of all, it's a huge relief when I explain this to people in recovery. It, it is because you can't, you can't get rid of your traits. So if people are talking about and talking about these traits is what caused you to be sick. And you're thinking to yourself, but that's me. I mean, I remember thinking, well, I don't want to get rid of that part of myself. But I did want to channel it in a way that would be my asset as Mm -hmm. opposed to hurting me. Mm -hmm. And I do think people are relieved. It's a huge relief. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And the integration piece has helped me heal other parts of my life as well. Yeah, because you can apply it to other things. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just have to be eating disorder. We have split parts sometimes in a lot of ways. Or there's this part over here that doesn't really want to deal with this stuff over here. You know? <laughs> or they're kind of at war with each other. And we have to talk to ourselves. And that's part mm-hmm. of what the healing is. Talking to yourself and, and working it out, you know? Yeah. And then as guides, helping that person do things to access their healthy self and to strengthen it. And, you know, all the assignments in the eight keys book have a lot to do with that. How do you get in touch with and strengthen that core healthy part of you and uh, treat yourself the way you would treat other people, which is a key, right? I mean, that's right. A key. right. And that brings me to another part of this conversation I wanted to have with you, which is now that you're starting to, well, coaching is very much a legitimate part of 
eating disorder treatment right now, but could you explain to those listening, how does coaching fit into the treatment model right now? Like, how is it playing a piece in recovery? You know, I think the best way to think of it is if you think of there's a therapist or a dietitian and they're working with somebody and let's say they're talking about her fears and they're talking about her fear of, let's just say, eating pizza and, and, and keeping it because for years now, or let's just say it's even been months now, she has been eating foods like that and purging them up from the first because the fear of gaining weight, but or being fat, but then it becomes sort of a habitual, can become something that just becomes pretty automatic. So imagine you're a therapist and you're talking about it, or you're a dietitian and you're saying, you know, we can fit pizza into your meal plan and blah, blah, blah. And they talk about it. They give them help and ideas. Then the client goes out and they are on their own for the rest of the week. And they go to the pizza place and they order the pizza. And I, I call it like, here's them. And then the eating disorder self goes, wait, I'm in front now. Mm. And because the neural pathways are already created by this point, by the time you've had an eating disorder for a while, it becomes automatic. It's just, oh, I eat pizza. I throw it up. Mm. Yeah. And for years, people were doing that and talking to clients about what, talking to clients about the underlying issues, about how did this develop and how did your need for control establish itself in this way? Or what's so important about losing weight with the culture? There's all these important things to talk about. But when the rubber meets the road and the person is sitting there with a the pizza in front of their plate, there was no one there, mm. no one there to help. And by the way, it's not fair to think a therapist can be there for all their clients who are doing that. How can they? But coaches don't have the rules. Well, first of all, they're freer in terms of being able to go out and have meals with clients, sit with a client after the meal. So a coach would be someone who helps the therapist and the dietitian get those goals, helps the client accomplish those goals that are set. Mm-hmm. And that's the best way to think of them is that the coach is there hand in hand working with the the client at the moment they're trying to accomplish those behavior goals. And it's a lot like, I mean, we've been doing this in chemical dependency, sober coaching for a long time, because people realize that when that person wants to drink, sometimes being able to be there or to call your sponsor or your sober coach, or to have them go with you to a place where there's going to be alcohol for a while so that you get your sea legs, you know, and you start being able to, do it without engaging in the behavior and then ultimately trying it, you know, more times on your own. Same thing as texting. Coaches are available like sponsors in that way. The person can, let's say they have a meal plan. They haven't eaten breakfast for a long time. They're supposed to start adding breakfast and they get up in the morning and they freak out. You can text your coach. You can get on Zoom with your coach. Your coach can go, I'll get my breakfast. We'll eat together. And therapists and dietitians just can't be as flexible with their schedules. There's a whole dual relationship that exists. So therapists sometimes wouldn't even want to do those things, especially going to a person's house. Mm. Like if you're an eating disorder coach, you can go to someone's home and help them go grocery shopping and cook their first meal, particularly if they get out of a treatment program, let's say, and they've had their meals cooked for them now for a month or whatever, you go home and you're like, ah, who's going to help in that transition? So it seemed obvious to me because when I ran, even when I ran residential, I trained, I had, I didn't call them coaches then, but recovery counselors and support counselors, we took the clients grocery shopping, we help someone would go and help them set up their house, or we'd call and see if there was someone in the area where they live that would do that. We tried to do stuff like that, but there weren't a lot of coaches around. So it took me about a year after selling Montanito to, to realize, and I looked up online, I thought, is anyone training eating disorder coaches? Cause I knew a few people wanted to do it and were saying they were going to be eating disorder coaches. And I couldn't find a training program. And I have an education background, you know, being a teacher and all that. Plus, I'm a continuing education provider for therapists and dietitians. And I thought, oh, this is perfect. I'm going to train coaches and I'm going to do a really good job of it. So, you know, the coaches, the course is 
It takes about a year and it's pretty rigorous and you have to do an internship and all that. I think now, I mean, it was, it was touch and go because I think people in the field were worried. A lot of these coaches are recovered and how do we know they're recovered enough? And how do we know they're not going to relapse? And how do we know they're not going to treat people thinking that the way to do it is exactly how they did it and eating disorders are tough. And I, I always, I have a lot of arguments to all those things. We could pick them apart, but I'll just say a couple right now. One of them is that I train. There are a lot of people out there who are therapists and dietitians who had eating disorders, but nobody's trained them to use their lived experience. I just say, you can say all you want about maybe recovered people shouldn't be in the field. Well, they are. (laughs) They are, whether you know it or not, they're there. They're just not disclosing it. I prefer people disclose it. And then I tell them they have to sign a document, as you know, saying they've been recovered for two years and have to meet my definition of being recovered because I think that that helps. And then I train them and train them, especially in the supervision part. There's that two tracks, but in the supervision part about how to use their lived experience, how to weave it in, what not to do. And I think not openly recognizing this and training people for it. We have people in the field who are doing it with no training. So this way, I think coaches who are taught to stick in the in the moment, in the here and now, not get into diagnosing, not get into underlying issues, not get into comorbid problems, but redirect those all back to the therapist, not get into prescribing meal plans, redirect that back to the dietitian. I think, I mean, look, I, I think there's some slip ups. There are times with boundaries when right now where I'm trying to help coaches that sometimes get in a slippery slope where let's say the therapist quits. I had this happen recently. The client was pretty severe and there was a coach on the case and the care therapist like, I'm not doing it anymore. And now the coach is like, what do I do? Because I'm trained that there should be a therapist with the case. Luckily, people are calling me and asking and I try to help work out things like that, how to get another therapist or how to set a limit and say, I can't continue with you, blah, blah, blah. There are some outliers in certain situations, but for the most part, I think the coaches are helping existing treatment teams do the work that they are grateful to have that help. Mm-hmm. That's, That's how I see it. I will. I, I think it's useful for everyone listening. Believe it or not, I haven't made a podcast episode specifically about what coaching is meant to look like. I just dive into coaching wow. topics. Yeah. So I'm glad you're the one to really ex- explain how we fit into the treatment model. And what I always like to remind people is coaching is our recovery coaching area of expertise is so niche and so focused that I think it's important to have a coach sometimes because they're going to get into our sessions and we're tackling the eating disorder every single session where I remember when I would go to therapy for my eating disorder, if my eating disorder didn't want to talk about the eating disorder, I would dive into my relationships in the session and spend an entire week not focusing on it. Yeah. You know what I mean? And by the way, therapists have a lot of other stuff they have to deal with because all those things do interact and perpetuating, if not having caused the eating disorder, perpetuating it. So therapists have a ton of work and dietitians too. And yet you're right as a coach. And you know, I have trained coaches when a client starts going off into but my boyfriend broke up with me or my dad did this and that to say, to redirect it back to how's that going to interfere with your food tonight, Mm -hmm. which a therapist might really need to talk about that relationship with the dad and how you can protect yourself or how you bring your best self forward or how you use your voice or how you set boundaries with your dad or whatever it is that the therapist knows is, is the work that needs to happen. Uh, that's important. I really understand that must be hard. I'll make sure that the therapist knows you brought it up today and communicate, communicate, communicate with the therapist. But then the coach says, okay, but how did that affect what you did at, at lunch? Mm-hmm. Then you get right back to, or why did taking those laxatives help make that any better? It didn't. So how come you didn't text me before you took them? Mm-hmm. Like being getting people to be in the moment and to reach out in the moment. 
And that's key seven in the book. You have to reach out to people rather than your eating disorder to get your needs met. But you can't, as a therapist, have people reaching out to you all day and night. That That's just, it's too overwhelming. Now, by the way, as a therapist, I did do that, but I did it. I would pick select clients like, okay, like this month I would have, let's say three or four clients and, and you all reach out to me before you binge or before you purge, or if you can't follow your meal plan. And that's how I learned that that really worked. I mean, that really worked. Mm -hmm. And so now that's what I train coaches to be able to do is to really, and by the way, the clients don't really want to do that. (laughs) They don't really want to do that. They'll text you afterwards. Oh, I really blew it. But coaches are trained to keep on working at, no, you got to reach out before you do the behavior. Anyway, I think when the coach and the therapist and the dietitian, and even if there's a psychiatrist and a physician, when everybody's communicating, then I think the coach is really seen as a valuable aspect. I've even had therapists write me now and say, I don't ever want to work without a coach now that I've had one. Mm-hmm. I just had a coach send me an email and said, wow, such and such coach was is such an asset to my practice. So Finally, I feel like people are not seeing coaching as coming in as a as a threat. Now, like anything, there are some coaches that are better than others. There are some coaches who are going to need more practice to be more skillful, but it's the same thing as therapists and dietitians when you're new into the thing. There are some coaches who are in their 50s who are have already been therapists or nurses, which is fascinating to me, people who come to take the CCI course. And there are some coaches who are younger and and out there and just they're recovered and they want to give back and they have experience. But so it's a there's a lot of varieties and there's coaches who are transgender and there's coaches who have different aspects, coaches who are athletes who had an eating disorder when they were an athlete. So there's people finding their niche in coaching for what some like adolescents more some like dealing with binge eating more than the other eating disorders, they're finding their way of how they want to and who they want to help. Mm -hmm. So who would you say is a good candidate for working with the recovery coach? Well, it's kind of all over the map because at first I was thinking about kind of the normal person who's normal. (laughs) (laughs) Forget that the eating disorder client who though has a team, you know, and is working towards getting better. And then I realized, oh, they really need to be there for people who get out of a treatment program. Mm -hmm. Because when you get out of 24 seven and you go back to a couple sessions a week, that's super hard. And so being there as so transitional coaches are really good for transitional times. Live in coaches are good for transitional times, especially for people who are going back to places where they don't really have solid teams. Mm. Uh, I think, as you know, I've had a CCI coach patient came out and went to a treatment program here in the U S and then, but her family was in India. So when she discharged, they didn't have anything. They didn't have anything set up. So a CCI coach went and lived there for three months, I think, and helped her transition back, helped the family, helped get a team in place, which part of it involved zoom zooming back here to the U S for some therapy contacts. And anyway, so that was one. Uh, Another one that is interesting to me that I hadn't thought of was parents who are doing FBT and they are getting exhausted doing FBT and they really want help with a coach maybe coming in and helping supervise some of the meals so the parents don't have to do it all the time and get in battles all the time with their mm-hmm. kids and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and especially helping kids, younger adolescents, or even people who are older, who are just kind of starting with the eating disorder, maybe haven't, this is a new one, it was a new one, not even really meeting the diagnostic criteria, but getting a coach on board right away that helps gear the thing in a different direction and helps Mm -hmm. prevent the person getting a full-blown eating disorder. I didn't really expect that. I wasn't thinking really about that one in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
So look, you know, it's it go, it's it kind of goes all over the place. There's yeah. openings. They just have to be careful that they stay in their lane. They just have to be careful that they do not try to perform the duties of any other treatment team member. And they have to be really clear in their documentation, as you know, all those templates I send out about this is not therapy. I am not a dietitian. Here's what I can and can't do. I communicate with your treatment team. They have to make sure that they get those release forms. There are some coaches who started out and the clients is like, oh, I'll get you the release form. I'll get you the release form. And they drag their feet and I'm on top of them because it's super important. You don't want to be in a position where the client tells you something or does something and you don't have a release to talk to the team. Mm-hmm. Even though there's no law for coaches that says they have to have a release, I've trained all the coaches to do it exactly like a therapist would do it because I think that's, I'm trying to hold the highest standard. I think there will be laws about coaching. And as I told you, I signed up for the, it's IOC. International. It's not association. Anyway, it's a coaching organization, an inter- uh, one that's out of Institute of Coaching. Maybe that's it. Institute that sounds like it. It was very simplified. Institute of Coaching. And it's out of clean through Harvard. And it's all these various coaches. And now I'm a member signed up through C- for CCI for the Carolyn Costin Institute, Coaching Institute to be in touch with coaches all over and looking at their research and how they do research and what are the leaders in the field of coaching in a variety of areas. So I hope to help educate them a bit about what eating disorder coaching is, but I also hope to learn and maybe get some help in terms of some funding for some studies to show Mm -hmm. the efficacy of coaching. Yeah, it's taken off. And we're in a lot of countries now I don't, I think I told you before we started recording, so I'll repeat it. There's about 75 or 76 certified coaches now mm-hmm. in about somewhere around 15 different countries. Wow. So we're talking about Dubai, Peru, Spain, the Czech Republic, South Africa. It, it's shocking to me. Greece, England, Canada, Australia, people have found the site and said, we need this here. We need something to help the clients in this hands-on, in the moment, all that. And they they have found me, you know, I'm not going in those countries, but you know, <laughs> with the way the internet and global, you know, stuff is, they they look on the internet and they and they have found CCI. So I'm super proud of that. And I want what I want to do, but because of COVID, I haven't even really considered it. I want to do some kind of conference on coaching for coaches and for people who want to come, parents, family members, clients who want to come learn about it, practitioners who want to come learn about it. So that's kind of going around in my, in the in the works. And for oh, yeah. anyone who's watching, if they can't afford a coach, coaches are less expensive than therapists and dietitians. Although I have to admit some of my coaches are making such good money now because they're, they have wait lists and they're in demand, but it's, it's usually more affordable. So you can add it to a team without a high extra cost. But for anyone who doesn't have the resources, Project Heal now allows coaches to be in their healer circle, which formerly had treatment centers, dietitians, and therapists. And now CCI coaches, because they, Project Heal knows because I trained their mentors when they did communities of healing and had the Mm -hmm. mentors, which now ANAD has, I was involved in training and wrote the handbook. And so they know about the training and they know that the training for coaches is about 10 times more rigorous and much longer. And gratefully, I'm grateful for Project Heal and Rebecca Iyer and, and Christina Saffron in the beginning to, to make it so that coaches have signed up for the healer circle, which means that they're giving coaching sessions for either for free or for a reduced fee. Mm. And so that's super nice for people who call and they can't really afford coaching. And as you know, all the interns who are working with me in their scholarship, they have to work for free until they get certified. I I tell them they can't charge till they're certified. Mm -hmm. 
that's another way that people can get a coach to check it out and see if it's worth it. They like it and it's helpful because the intern during the internship coaches provide free um, service. So mm-hmm. that makes me feel good that we're giving back in that way. Yeah, I completely agree. And I remember being a coach in that moment, having to do the free sessions and it was very nerve wracking because I wanted to make sure that I was <laughs> doing it well. And I knew you were going to be listening to the recordings, yeah. but I remember like those were very powerful moments for me because I was seeing how much I can help people and it was for free. So I made some good connections with individuals who I might not have been able to work with because they didn't have the means to afford coaching. Yeah. I think people are still stunned that I listen to every single, with all those coaches that I have, and I have 70 in training right now. And I have a wait list. I don't even know if you know that there's a wait list now. Cause I can't, I'm very hands-on mm. and this is how I was at Montanito. Also, I don't, it doesn't matter if I have to work hard. I really feel like I need to be involved. So I'm limiting how many people can take the course at once. But I think people still think it's kind of shocking that I listen to every single, especially my husband, every single <laughs> session of every single coach, which means that when I'm on my morning walk, if I'm on my exercise bike, if I'm riding in the car, putting my makeup on in the morning, I got my earphones on listening to sessions. Wow. Yes. I was shocked when I found out you were still listening to everyone's sessions like that amazes that completely amazes me and I will say going through the course you were not an easy grader like there were definitely <laughs> I know like, and I I explained that to people when they're like so what was it like I was like first of all it took me almost two years to complete because I had a full-time yeah. job yeah some people take up to that and that's how long as you know people have up to two years <laughs> and I was like also Carolyn is going to tell you when you're totally off base, like you're very honest. And I had to repeat some assignments and it was not a cakewalk, which most coaching certifications, because I took a few life coaching certifications back in the day, those were kind of BS compared to the standard that you set with your coaching. That you could not make me happier by saying that. (laughs) Because you know what, I don't, I'm not, but I wasn't mean. I was pretty kind about it, Mm -hmm. but I'm tough because I realize this is critical. Coaching is new. You have lives at stake. My name is on the Institute. So it is super important to me. Yeah. I make you guys do it over. If I don't, if I got it wrong, (laughs) it's not an easy course. That's for sure. But People can do it. It's doable if you hang in there. Some people have dropped out of the course, but you know, I think that's important because I don't think they would have made it as a coach. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It just is important to have that kind of integrity. And I think people who know me expect that from me. Mm -hmm. And and I do tell people because everyone's always nervous going into supervision. I do tell them, look, I'm I'm kind about it and I will help you. I, and I realize this is hard, but this is going to make, I want to make you the best coach you can be. Yeah. And I definitely think you do do that as best as you can. So I'm really grateful. I found your, your certification <laughs> when I did, cause it was very serendipitous. I was focused on finding my niche and coaching, wanted to do eating disorder recovery coaching. I think I was already aware of your book, the eight keys book. And so when oh. I saw your name attached to the certification that gave me all the confidence I needed to, to take your program. So, well, um, you know, that's, that's, I I don't know how much time we have, but I'll just say quickly, you know, the eight keys book is another cool thing about coaching because that was written as a self-help book and Norton and sons asked me to write that book. And I thought to myself, self-help for eating disorders. I don't know. I almost didn't write it. And then, of course, I ended up writing it with my colleague and uh, former client from Montanito, Gwen Grab. Well, the thing about it is it's hard sometimes to do self-help, but if you're a coach, you can work through that book with clients and it helps them to do the assignments in there. And those assignments were not just, oh, let's put together stuff. I sat down and thought, what are the most important things? Because eight keys, they only had let me do eight. What are the eight most important things 
that I have done in my work over the last, what, what, what was it at the time I wrote the book? I don't know, 38 years or whatever, that I think have made my work successful and Montanito, which had a mm. high success rate, successful. And putting those into the book and they are directed just to the client. So coaches have that as a skeletal structure to work with mm -hmm. and share with like the conscious eating quiz, for example, you know, even that and that coaches have worked with clients and then shared that with dietitians who are like, wow, this is really helpful. So it provides a kind of a, it's not, it's structured. I guess that's what I want to say. It helps mm -hmm. coaching have structure to it. Mm -hmm. I love it. I use it all the time. My copy of the eight keys book is completely tattered and used because <laughs> I've, I've been carrying it around with me every day for probably three or four years at this point. Oh my God. <laughs> so anyway, we're coming up on the end of our interview and I wanted to just ask you one last question just to finalize our conversation. And that is, what is your favorite piece of advice that you like to give those struggling with eating disorders? Well, I, the first thing that comes to mind is that never ever think that the eating disorder is more powerful than you are because you give it its power. And I hear that. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say it's bigger than me. It's stronger than me. I can't get over it. It feels that way. I know when you're struggling because I felt the same way, but the reality is it's not some outside alien force that landed on you. The only reason an eating disorder can exist in there is you're giving it its power. Or let me say it this way, a part of you is giving it all this power. So know that and know that that goes back to the idea of let someone help you strengthen the other part, your healthy self that has been overcome or pushed aside, or it's just not been in control. Let someone help you access that part and strengthen that part because you do have the power. And I really, really, really believe that. I wouldn't be doing this work if I didn't believe that. So mm. I guess that's it. Beautiful. I love that piece of advice. And it's such a helpful reminder for everyone to just hear before we wrap up the show. So Carolyn, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for being a pioneer in the field and allowing me to be a coach. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing without your guidance and support. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Carry on. I All guess. right. <laughs> All right. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.